0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. And Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius, off the Marin-Sonoma coast, and it's an area that is thriving with ocean life both above and below the surface. California's waters have had a long history of productive and economically beneficial fisheries. That's not to say without some challenges, of course, for lots of other wildlife and people. This region does contain some of the most abundant biodiverse waters around the globe due to the productive oceanography that we experience here on the eastern Pacific. Fisheries are in constant flux in terms of managing them on a wide enough scale. Biological variability, oceanographic variability, and economics all play a role in how they are managed. The Magnuson Stevens Fisheries Act, enacted in 1976, set up regional fishery councils, fishery management councils around the United States to manage fisheries regionally. Here on the West Coast, we have the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, along with the State Department of Fish and Wildlife, which manages fisheries in state waters. So today we are discussing the current status of a specific fishery in California, the nets. And they've had a long on and off again history in California. And we'll discuss what's happening right now with Doug Carpa who's the Legal Program Director at Turtle Island Restoration Network. And Doug is joining us by telephone today. Doug, you're live on KWMR.
1: Great. Well, thanks so so much for having me on.
0: So great to meet you. So I just actually ran into Doug yesterday in San Francisco at the International Ocean Film Festival, which we'll talk about later. In this show, But, Doug, thank you so much for joining me. And um, I wanted to just help, if you could just remind us about the Turtle Island Restoration Network and what is it all about? It's based out here in West Marin, but I know its work is global in nature.
1: Yeah, it's actually kind of a, um, kind of a gem, I think, in West Marin. Um, its uh, organization has been around for uh, more than a couple of decades now, working on all manner of marine conservation issues, um, both nationally um, and also internationally. We have a uh, pretty active uh, work in Costa Rica dealing with uh, shark finning issues and working to establish a national park there. We're also working to protect the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and um, also increasing some of our efforts in uh, throughout Asia as well through partners and, and other um, direction action that we're engaged in. Um, and then, of course, in the United States, we've been really very actively engaged with fisheries management and fisheries management councils around the country. Um, and a large part of that effort really has been focused on uh, trying to either clean up or close the most destructive fisheries in the United States. Um, certainly the United States uh, is, a, is, in a lot of ways, a real leader when it comes to scientific management of fisheries, but that's not to say that we don't have um, a couple of fisheries which are still among the dirtiest in the world. Um, and so since we advocate on behalf of uh, a lot of marine mammals, whales, dolphins, um, sea lions, so forth, and also, of course, sea turtles, um, this is part of the reason we're Turtle Island Restoration Network, and our website is sea Um And then also, we're very heavily involved in in, um, protection of fish and shark, bluefin tuna, blue marlin, whole range of of species that are are currently under threat.
0: Fantastic. So one of the issues that you're working on right now is a bit of a current issue, mostly based in Southern California, but it's talking about drift nets. And I know California has had drift nets here um, on and off again since maybe starting in the 70s. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background. What are drift nets and what do they target? What species do they target? And a little bit of the history of them, uh, where they've been used here in California.
1: Um, Yeah, actually, I realized in my previous part, I should also mention that many of your listeners may also know some of our work on coho salmon, which is another piece species that we work on here locally in Central Valley through Spawn, which is also part of Turtle Island Restoration Network, that's maybe subject for another show. Um, so the drift gillnets, uh, actually these have been around for a couple of decades, um, and they were first used in the 70s uh, in California as part of um, a swordfish fishery. Traditionally um, swordfish have been caught by use of harpoons, I do mean uh, traditionally, in the sense that this has been going on for thousands of years, the Chumash Indians, um, starting it off. And then, of course, with the, uh, immigration of, of Europeans, M- European Americans, um, have kind of followed in that tradition as well. Uh, and then in, uh, 1976, the use of, um, drift skill nets was, was legalized. And these nets actually, um, are pretty hard to comprehend just how massive they are they're actually um the largest ones which is pretty much what's used would if you hung it from the golden gate bridge they would stretch from one shore to the other and they would hang from the deck all the way to the surface and another thirty feet down into the water and as you can imagine with a net that big they're set loose in the water overnight or for um days they catch anything in its path. It is essentially like strip mining or clear-cutting the ocean. Um, so the notion of targeting is a little misguided, although the main thing that today drift-gill net fishermen are trying to catch are uh, still swordfish, and then also as swordfish got fished out a little bit, um, thresher shark, which, um, unfortunately, drift-gill net fisheries in the 1980s managed to uh, completely crash the population, and those Populations are only now slowly, slowly beginning to recover. Um, and then, um, over the partly in response to some of the ongoing issues with bycatch of first sea lions and whales, and dolphins, and sea turtles, sharks, um, and it's really been subject to a whole series of regulatory actions. Um, initially, within five years of their being introduced. Um, the first action was taken to move drift field net fishing to more than three miles off the California coast because they were taking so many sea lions. And, of course, by moving off the coast, then uh, dolphins and whales become an issue. And so there was uh, later action to have the drift net drift but 36 feet below the surface, um, which uh, did eliminate some of the the problems with the, the surface dolphins, but then uh, ended up ramping up some of the catch of whales and sea turtles. Um, also, in addition, in 2001, there was a, uh, a closure put in place um, from around about the central coast California uh, north for the protection of Pacific leatherback turtles, which are uh, critically endangered uh, species that actually they hatch in Indonesia uh, and... Um, and then migrate slowly across the Pacific. Uh, some of your listeners may remember Crush uh, from uh, Finding Nemo, who was riding the East Australia Current across the Pacific. That's what they really do. he was a green turtle, um, but same kind of idea with the leatherback. And then they show up in the uh, California coast, eat the just incredible profusion of jellyfish. Uh, that happens because of, uh, as you're saying, our unique oceanography. And uh, they run into real trouble here um, on account of the
0: so, the leatherback conservation area was put in place for because of drift nets. Is that what you're saying? Is that was something that brought drift right. nets out of this ar- this area?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. It's a, it's an exclusion for um, for drift gill nets specifically. Longliners um, also are subject to regulation. Long lines are um, lines that are many kilometers long, and um, they're used in Hawaii but not in California um also pretty destructive for much the same reason. You leave a whole bunch of gear out there, you don't really know what you're gonna catch. Um yeah, and actually I should point out too that along the line, I mean we're talking about what's been going on in California, um but actually international agencies have really taken um a pretty hard line on drift net. They are they are banned um on the high seas globally. Um, by international agreement, a resolution at the UN, which the United States is a party to that. Um, they're also prohibited in the Mediterranean, and uh, within the United States, the state of Washington closed down its drift net fishery in 2001 uh, in response to the destruction of common pressure shark populations. Um, Oregon abandoned it entirely; um, essentially gave it up and stopped issuing permits for it in 2009. Uh, the state of Florida actually enacted a constitutional amendment banning these uh, in 1994. So there's uh, um, a long history, not just in California, of tackling this problem, but but globally. Interesting.
0: Interesting. So it seems like gl- California is the state, the last one of the last states, perhaps, that continues to operate the fishery, and it's reduced a bit in terms of numbers of boats, but. How come we haven't shifted over to different fishery techniques for targeting thresher shark or swordfish? I have other questions about the demand for those still. But um, how come we haven't shifted away yet with this enormous amount of bycatch? Obviously, there's a lot of public dismay about that. But where are we going with that?
1: (laughs) Um, There are probably many different answers to that question. Um, I think probably the most significant answer uh, simply is um, inertia and resistance, uh, first on the part of the fishermen who have invested in gear and they're not particularly keen to transition back largely to harpoon fishers. Um, Although I will point out that the son of the guy who invented the drift gill net in California is now a harpoon fisher and has actually abandoned drift gill net gear, which, what does that tell you, right? Um, but there's also been, um, you know, agencies, um, certainly uh, not to disparage NOAA fisheries, but um, there's certainly been a lot of, uh, I guess I would say, support at a at a regulatory level for the continuation, um, essentially on a theory that, like, hey, if we just do another couple of tweaks, maybe it will all work out. Um you know, which is uh, perhaps questionable, given how many different things have been already tried over the last 40 years. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, I think those are probably the, the two main um, considerations. There's also, you know, of course, always, you know, political issues um, that particular decision-makers are, um, you know, from, say, San Diego and Santa Barbara may um, – you know, essentially want to, want to keep this fishery around for kind of local political consideration. Although I will point out that the, um, that's William from um, uh, right around Santa Barbara, the Assemblyman, has actually signed a letter calling for the end of the uh, drift net fishery. Actually, as has our own Assemblyman, Mark Levine, um, as a letter to the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, uh, asking for that. So it's not like there's anywhere near a political consensus that this should continue. Um, change just comes slowly.
0: So that, since change does come so slowly, and this has been obviously going on for a while, uh, tell us a little bit more about this assembly bill and um, how does this get presented and move forward and how can people learn more about it?
1: Right. Well, actually, it was um, the action I was talking about. It's actually a, it's a letter um, from various legislators Uh, to the Pacific Fisheries Management Council. And I should mention um, that really in the next, uh, what is it, 10 days, is uh, a pretty critical period for people who want to actually take action on this um, because the Pacific Fisheries Management Council is, in fact, meeting on, uh, I believe it's March 11th and 12th, to discuss what actions they're going to take um, with respect to the management of this fishery. And uh, if any individuals want to comment to the uh, council directly, they can send those comments today by email. Um, that is the uh, address for that is pfmc, which is Pacific Fisheries Management Council dot NOAA, N O A A. Oh, sorry. dot comment at noaa dot gov. So that pfmc dot comment at Noaa.gov um, to send those off, or you can visit our website seaturtles.org uh, for uh, the petition that we are getting together to submit to the council, saying, you know what, people in California do care about uh, marine life, and you know we we love our seafood. There's unequivocal, um, but we want to see it done in sustainable ways, and, and, and fisheries with this just incredibly high level of bycatch. Um, really not the way to, to go about doing it um and so that's kind of the main action right now to see what action that uh those regulators will take i understand um that there is appetite for um if that does not work for the california legislature to step in uh there was actually a bill uh that was um before the legislature last session that, uh, was pretty much called for an end to this fishery full stop, um, that ended up dying in committee. And, um, there's sort of ongoing negotiations about, uh, bringing that forward with more of a concrete plan for how one transitions away, um, essentially to alternate gear. Um, you know, we've mentioned the harpoon gear. There's also an experimental gear that's being looked at, um, using, uh, buoys, uh, a sort of suspended hook, which from the initial results may actually be uh, lower bycatch, considerably lower bycatch. And if those results hold up in practice, that could be a very positive development that gives um, the swordfish fishery uh, a place to go and a different gear to be using uh, in the future.
0: Interesting. So I also understand swordfish in general have... Their sizes have gotten smaller over time. And, you know, in terms of the population itself, is it still a fishery that's really viable or does it need to be cut back on in terms of if we catch too many, we won't have any around? It just seems like things are shifting so rapidly right now. It's hard to believe that we're still allowing practices that catch so much more than the targeted species.
1: That Yeah, that's right. Um, The... My understanding is that, in fact, yes, swordfish have been getting smaller, um, largely because that happens when uh, essentially you're catching fish before they have a chance to really grow up. Um, and I think you raised kind of a good point, which is this is not just swordfish. Uh, there's actually was a recent uh, study, a very interesting one. Um, even probably some of you may have seen this in the New York Times, um, that. You know, there's a tradition of fishermen coming back off the boats, you know, recreational fishers, who hold up their catches and they take a photograph. And we have this great record of the size of fish that people have been catching over the last century. And looking at those, if you go back to, say, the 30s and 40s, you see fishermen with fish bigger than they are. I mean, really, really big fish, um, including swordfish. And over time, as you look at the photos from the 50s and 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s until today, today we're now fishermen are coming back and they're very proud of these fish that they catch and they can hold in front of them with two hands. Um, very, very different. And this, so this phenomenon that as we uh, fish and, and cut into these populations, what's left are kind of the, the runts and the, and the ones that just really haven't had a time to grow up to be a full-size fish. Fish do uh, grow for a very, very long time. Um, and also in the case of swordfish, the, uh, one of the other concerns of uh, demand for swordfish has been declining in the U.S., in part out of consideration that um, a lot of the fisheries are globally are not sustainable and, um, you know, as seen by the side. But also because they are top predators, uh, they tend to, if they eat their prey fish that have any kind of uh, poisons in them in this case particularly mercury is an issue they concentrate that in their own flesh which is why when you go into the supermarket you see warnings about you know tuna and shark and swordfish these big predators um that they're dangerous to eat too much of because you can get mercury poisoning and um you know pregnant women should avoid uh eating eating this fish and that's uh again that ought to tell you that what not maybe so healthy for pregnant women isn't necessarily so healthy for the rest of us either um and uh that has also cut into um the demand um for swordfish as well um and then moving on to questions of pressure sharks which is the other official target um pressure sharks are have been under just tremendous pressure globally populations are down by 90 percent um i like to sort of People, in an analogy, um, if you reduce the U.S. population by ninety percent, you would uh, everybody in the United States disappear except for the people living in Illinois and Iowa. Hmm. All the rest of us are gone. That's what ninety percent looks like. Um, and uh, in the case of pressure sharks, they've recently been listed uh, for international protection under the Convention for Migratory Species, and um, which limits the trade. In, in fish in um, pressure shark, and they've also been listed by the uh, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is a scientific organization, um, declaring that you know what, this population is threatened and is on its way to extinction if nothing is done. Um, it's actually at the same level of um, so this population status is, is the same as the cheetah, which is uh, some people may know is in, in pretty dire condition, and the, and the polar bear, which is also um, suffering decline, as well as um, a number of other other species. So, um, in the case of the thresher shark, that's not by hatch but they're targeting thresher shark. But it's a fishery that's targeting a species that's going extinct because it's being targeted. Um, again, that's uh, something that uh, the uh, regulatory uh, agencies need to take a very long hard look at whether or not that's something also that should continue in addition to, to
0: the bycatch issue for those tuning in i'm talking with doug carpa from sea turtle restoration network and we're discussing drift net fisheries in california and the horrendous bycatch and challenges that this fishery has been uh taking on and the management agencies as well may be discussing in the coming days um Going back to thrasher sharks, are they a species managed by the state of the state or the the uh, Pacific Fisheries Management Council?
1: Uh, that's a good question, and actually, um, I'm not entirely sure of how that interplay on thresher shark in particular works. Um, I do my um, my understanding. Well, certainly, the um, Pacific Fisheries Management Council is looking at uh regulating that uh, that catch and putting in uh performance objectives to essentially let's keep an eye on this um at this current upcoming meeting uh whether the um the fish and fish and game commission and the department of fish and wildlife at the state level are also regulating that i'm less familiar with what what the state authorities are up to with respect to thresher shark, but uh I'd be happy
0: to get back to you on. That. oh that's okay i was just curious um you know coming i'm just thinking about these remaining boats that are still doing this and this practice and how is it documented in terms of the bycatch i just can't imagine coming back to the dock with all this stuff i mean how do you bring back whales and dolphins and stuff i mean it's happening not too far offshore and i'm sure this is observed from other boats around but do they have observers like mandatory observers that are on board if they have a permit to do this to document this bycatch?
1: Absolutely. Um, actually, it's um, yeah, the, the NOAA, NOAA Observer Program the, um, that actually sends uh, people out onto boats to monitor what's going on. And that is uh, what I referred earlier to the notion that U.S. fisheries um, regulation has a lot to recommend it. Uh, This is one of the things that the the United States does that's extremely, uh, extremely important to get that data, to have somebody there on the boat and keep track of what's being pulled in. Um, And uh, actually, one of the uh, things that environmental activists and scientists, I think, often are asking Congress for is to fully fund uh, the observer program, because I think there's a lot of, of interest on the part of of regulators to, to have more observers, um, but it costs money to do. Um, not a lot. Uh, I think the budget for the, uh, if I remember, I think it's all of the um, California, the entire budget was under a million dollars. Um, so not in global levels a whole lot. And um, when it comes to collecting that critical data that we need for uh you know, protecting our oceans and knowing exactly uh, whether or not we are doing things sustainably or not. Without these observers, you have—we really have no idea. Um,
0: sounds like a it, horrible job. I mean, how, <laughs> that sounds like a horrible job.
1: I'm not sure, actually. Um, I know that a lot of those boats are pretty cramped, and, it's, and it can often be uh, hard to be out there for days at a time just monitoring um, what's going on. But uh, on the other hand, I think a lot of people really like being out at sea. Um,
0: I'm just thinking and witnessing death like that. I, I just, Oh, I don't know if I could handle that.
1: On. Yeah. And actually, you know, one of the other things too, um, it's pretty dangerous work actually. I don't know if people know, I think about West Marin in particular, that the, um, the fishery, fishermen and ranchers and loggers, um, all of those are getting more dangerous jobs than being a policeman. I was looking that up the other day. Um, Loggers are, is the most dangerous occupation in the U.S. Fishermen's number two. Um, construction is another one in the top ten. Um, yeah, we have quite the uh, quite the assortment of uh, daredevils, I think, in the professional world out here. Um,
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: I'm not sure if observers are quite at risk in the same way, but, you know, it's a lot of moving machinery and not, not entirely safe.
0: Yeah, big seas, too, sometimes. Yeah. So it really, it's almost sounds like, really, with the trend that's happened, there's been a lot of global closures of this fishery, don't allow it anymore. It's decreased so much in California. It does seem like it's just a matter of time before this is completely phased out. And, again, this is a letter that you're putting forward to the Pacific Fisheries Management Council in the next two weeks to encourage them to phase out this fishery?
1: That's right. Um, we actually... Um are putting in a letter uh, ourselves to kind of look at some of the more technical details of um, what, the, what the council is up proposing to do in terms of, uh, for example, putting in hard caps, looking at, hey, if we catch more than one turtle in a year, then the fishery closed for the year. Um, uh, individuals who just simply want to express a, uh, a view of we need to rein in unsustainable fisheries like, as I mentioned before, can email in, and um, but yeah, I think the general consensus is that the um, the fishery itself is has been declining for a long time, as you've mentioned, um, in part because it's not really the most economical either. Uh, the the fishery makes up I think zero point five, a half of one percent of the total revenues of the California fishing industry. Um, it's really, really quite small, and uh, people don't tend to stay in it very long, and the fishermen are older than average, and there's a lot of talk among them of, like, you know, enough already. We get it. We're, we're ready to move on. Um, so it, it may entirely be that for economic reasons and, and uh, you know, kind of social reasons, the demographic reasons, that it will it will disappear on its own. Um but I think the concern is that it may not, and they may just kind of linger on, continuing to take um, whales and dolphins um, for a long period of time. Uh, one of the... You know, also to give a kind of a sense of the scale of the, the bycatch that uh, I'm not sure I've mentioned, that I mentioned that this fishery is less than 1% of the revenues. It's oh. 15 boats in total, so, and of which... About 20 are really active, so it's a small, small group. Um, but that small group catches 87 percent of all whales and dolphins caught by any fishermen in California, Oregon, Washington, and Alaska put together.
0: Wow, that's it's, huge.
1: Yeah, it's just this one. I mean, you you can see salmon fishermen, you know, here in California. You know, people going after Dungeness crab. You've got and and halibut fisheries up in Alaska and table fish, all sorts of things. You put all of those boats together and they don't even make up one twentieth of the amount of bycatch of whales um and dolphins that this that this small fishery does. Um so it's kind of a low hanging fruit. If you want to protect marine mammals this is one very easy
0: thing to do. Gosh, we ho- we really hope to see that there's progress on this this year, and I appreciate the update on this. How many um, boats are active in terms of the harpoon fishery? That seems like a much more um, sustainable in the sense of no bycatch fishery. Um, how many boats are actually active at harpoon fishing?
1: Um, not a lot. Um, I think it's actually, you know, I'm drawing a blank on the actual Number, But the total um, bycatch is uh, under 100 metric tons. I think if I'm remembering right, it's on the order of uh, 40 metric tons per year. Um, to give you comparison, the drift gillnet fishery is bringing in about uh, 350 metric tons of swordfish a year. Um, and then back in the heyday, um, uh, before the drift gillnet fishery even came into being, uh, it, over the period from 1950 to 1980, the harpoon fishery is actually bringing in 400 metric tons. So the old harpoon fishery um, was more than meeting the supply that drift skill landers plus harpooners today are meeting. Um, and so but the harpoon fishery is pretty small, I think, largely because it's a little bit crowded out by the, the drift gillnet net fishery. Um, and so there's every reason to expect uh, that people getting out of the drift gillnet net fishery, like uh uh, Kurt Mansur, the son of the inventor, uh, will get into harpooning. Um, it's a more intensive uh, effort that often will involve um, several boats sharing a, an airplane spotter that will go look for the swordfish. But, um, you know, the thing about it is, as you say, if you're harpooning a swordfish, it's pretty hard to mistake that for a sperm whale or a sea turtle. Yeah. Um, you just simply don't have those those bycatch issues um, there.
0: Interesting. Uh, Folks tuning in, this is KWMR, Point Reyes Station, Bellinas, and San Geronimo Valley. And I'm talking with Doug Carpa from Sea Turtle Restoration Network. And we've been talking quite a bit here about um, the swordfish fishery with uh, one of the dirtiest fisheries in the United States. About 63% of all animals caught are discarded. And almost 550 marine mammals have been entangled or killed in these nets in the last five years looking here on your fact sheet from Sea Turtle Restoration Network. Well, I wanted to transition here a little bit into another topic um, that relates as well to sharks. And I, I'm not completely up to date on the latest, but I think you might be in terms of shark finning and a ban in California for maybe it's landing shark fins. And wondering if you can just give us an update of what's happening with that. This is a, a practice where Sharks are caught, and they just take the fin and throw the rest of the shark back in the ocean and, and sell the fins. And what's happening with shark finning here, I guess maybe even globally, but also here in California, the local actions that we've been taking?
1: Yeah. Um, so actually, to start with the, I think, the global issue, of course, um, is that, you know, the most, almost the entire demand for shark fins is in Asia, mostly in China, um, although there are also, unfortunately, there's growing demand in countries like Malaysia and Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Thailand, uh, Indonesia. Um, and it's a, you know, as you mentioned, it's an incredibly uh, wasteful practice, and it's, it's having a pretty significant impact on global shark populations to the extent where, um, there are estimates of something like 3.9 million hammerhead sharks uh, fins coming into uh, China, uh, I believe, per year, which is just a, a staggering number given that there aren't that many hammerhead sharks in the world. Um, and so, one of the, um, of course, there's sort of with any of these issues, one of the things to do is to stop the fishing, but also to target. Um, transport from, for example, a lot of these things come from Central America or South America, and then they get shipped to China. And a lot of that um, shipment goes by air by way of California. And so one of the uh, efforts that's been undertaken is to uh, go after the shipment, to get, for example, airlines and carriers um, to sign budgets saying we are not going to uh, ship any more shark fin, and so we've had um, a fair number of success in in having um, airlines such as Singapore Airlines, Cafe Pacific, Korean Air, um, some of the Philippine airlines. Virgin has signed on a pledge to no longer ship shark fin. Uh, to date, no United States airline has signed on, um, which is something we are now working on. Uh, on a couple of airlines, American and United in particular, um, going forward. And um, so the California action is pretty critical because um, one is, as you say, has to do with landing. Um, My understanding is that that ban also relates to uh, possession and shipment as well. And that ban was uh, challenged in court. Uh, and upheld last year. I, I'm not sure if there's an appeal, um, but to my uh, – I was looking at this earlier, I wasn't able to find – notice that it's it, any news stories that it had been appealed, which suggests that the shark fin ban in California is in place. Um, that is one of nine states that have, have banned um spins Currently, the Texas State Legislature, which is another really big transit, um, transit know, planes coming in and out of houston on their way to asia from from uh latin america that is um taking up a bill even as we speak and if uh anybody wants to write to the california state legislature and uh um, to the governor uh please feel free to do so we'll encourage you to, to take action on that one um and then there's also um, action of in um, florida also to uh put in a ban and I believe Pennsylvania may also be um, working on a ban. So it's sort of um, happening state by state. There's also uh, the at the federal level. The um, some of the shark species, because they are so uh, depopulated, they are now getting to the point where they are endangered enough that they can make it onto the endangered species list under the um, U.S. Federal Endangered Species Act. Currently, I think the first, um, I think it was the first shark listed is the scalloped hammerhead um, in the eastern Pacific, which is one of the ones that is uh, taken, and if you'll pardon the expression, getting hammered um, off the Pacific coast of Central America and and Colombia. And so that actually now would be um, a vessel to ship, to bring those into the United States and then ship them on. Asia, which really gives uh, regulators um, a pretty significant uh, criminal hook to go after those shipments. But, um, actually, the, uh, the, the good people at the NOAA Enforcement uh, Division um, have really been, I think, take, taking a good look at this as well.
0: So uh, the ban, exact. What is exactly is the ban? It does not allow the shark fins to... Be transported here. Does it mean they cannot be sold here as well? I believe that's right. Um, I mean, you can't sell something that you can't receive, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ideally, um, there's a ban on possession as well. Because I, I know one of the um, the challenge actually to the ban came from at um, least some Chinese restaurant owners, and one of the claims was this is discriminatory against Chinese Americans because that. The large component of the of the demand, um, you know, for cultural and, and historical reasons, um, and I just, if my understanding is right, of course, that is a challenge that they wouldn't be able to bring if there were not in fact a ban on possession and you know, presumably serving um, shark fins as well. Um,
0: well, it's exciting to see California take such a strong stand, and it's also exciting to hear other states as well, and. That just shows a little bit more of the progression we're taking to slowly making changes to help protect these species. It's, it's kind of un, it's just boggling of the mind of how these populations of sharks are just hanging in there, really. And we don't really know for sure because we can't see every single one of them. But there's just so many pressures on these animals between bycatch and shark finning and many other things. It just seems like we should plastic. do all we can to... Oh, yeah, Plastic to help protect them, especially when we have so much rapid change happening in the ocean. You know, I'm curious. I don't know a lot about swordfish, their biology, and their habitat, but I know this past year we've had this rather large warm water mass move into our area, and to the point that I've heard that brown boobies, a type of seabird, have started setting up nests on the Farallon Islands, which is a sure sign of major change. A species yeah. that's typically down in Baja. Um, I'm curious if these fish, you think, would start moving up in this region? Um, if they would, they follow warm water. Do you know much about the biology of them?
1: Of the swordfish?
0: Yeah, um, they actually
1: are already um, off the coast. This is, I believe, part of their natural range of the swordfish, um, which is part of the reason why the drift gillnet fishery used to come up here to fish for them, and then, of course, take a lot of, of, of sea turtles. Um, as well. They are, I believe, they're pretty, they're highly migratory species, um, so they range easily, I mean, you can envision them as part of the, like, tunas and, and marlins, big, strong, powerful swimmers that travel for thousands of miles to the ocean. Um, I believe they, um, that, that uh, you know, that's that's the sort of thing that they go in for, and then um, you know, which means that as water conditions change, you, it seems like a pretty good guess that they, they will uh, respond to that. Um, interestingly enough, I was actually reading a story not um, a, uh, a scientific article uh, recently that actually documented that not only do the, the ranges of these species change as the result of uh, changes in temperature and, and uh, of course, uh, climate change, but also the impacts of fishing are so large that um, actual biomass gaps will open up in the ocean because such large numbers of these top predators are removed that other smaller animals that are their traditional prey, like skates and rays and so forth, end up moving into the space that's vacated when all of these top predators are removed. And then, of course, one of the interesting things uh, that caught my eye on the East Coast, this phenomenon has been uh, pretty well demonstrated. When those skates move in, one of the things they like to eat are shellfish. And there are scallop fisheries of Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, um, that have really taken a hit because the, um, the swordfish and, and other and sharks and other predators are removed by the fisheries that allow skates to come in and escape the shellfish. And um, yeah, so it's um one of these things that as we look at the oceans, as you say, there's a lot of change going on. Um and a lot of the things that that we're doing um are having pretty significant impact. Um I know also one of the other things that uh and, and actually Jenny, you may know more about this than I do, a significant concern um has to do with just simple starvation and whether there are significant disruptions to um Plankton and, and food webs, such so um, that I think there's larger numbers of sheep. There's been some significant seabird die-offs, and and uh, and uh, seals and sea lions um, coming in. Um, actually, at the Marine Mammal Center, my understanding is that there been a lot of starved um, animals showing up as well. And I can imagine that if it's affecting those populations, it's probably affecting the birds as well.
0: Yeah. There has been this warm water that we've received starting last July has really shifted things quite a bit, and we don't know how long it'll last. If this is a short-term thing, sure hope upwelling season will start this year and hopefully bring some cold water. But there were seabird die-offs in the fall. We heard from Russ Bradley out of the Farallon Islands about Cassin's auklets just not enough food in the water. And um, yeah, right now sea lions are really taking a hit too with not a lot of food in the water. So hopefully this is all very variable. The only constant in the universe is change is my new motto (laughs) when talking about the ocean and just hoping that there's also change for the better as well. And I'll mainly due to a lot of the work of people like you helping work on the legal issues behind the scenes that most of us just don't know what's going on. Um, There's a lot going on in terms of working to change the industry, to reduce challenges on these fisheries. So Thank you for that. We have just a couple minutes left, and I want to end the show with some other announcements, but I want to just give you a chance to share any last perspectives or opportunities for people to get involved with uh, the work that seaturtles.org is doing. I noticed that your website's really been renovated. I don't know how far back that is, but it looks really good, and it's very clear and easy to see the programs that you're all working on. But any last comments about getting involved with these actions and consumer choices we should make?
1: You know, I think actually, you know, the consumer choices is an important point because um, none of these protections um, can happen without public support. And, um, you know, particularly uh, having grown up in Marin County um, and knowing that, you know, the, the people of this county really are at the forefront of thinking about these issues thinking about the impact of the food we eat and how we raise it, um, how we fish for it. And so I think that, um, you know, just encourage listeners to, one, speak up, and when you hear these issues going on, send off a letter to decision makers because it lets them know that people care and people want to see that done. And ultimately, all of agencies are are answerable to us as, you know, the voting public. Um, And then, of course, um, and going to org, you can see a pretty broad range of things that we're up to um, between we're going to be putting together a petition on shark fin shipments for airlines. Of course, the drift net fishery is going on. We're looking at Hawaii longline impact. Um, it turns out that the state of Louisiana, um, not surprisingly, has a law on the books uh, prohibiting state employees from enforcing federal endangered species Law, um, which means that the Gulf shrimp fishery is having a tremendous impact on sea turtles. Um, the, that's a place you can take action. Um, and then, frankly, just being aware of the impact of what you eat. A lot of these, um, you know, particularly if you're looking at swordfish and tuna, those are two of the big ones that you order a steak of swordfish. And, you know, it might as well be that the waiter brings to you a plate of sperm whale and a plate of sea turtle and a plate of uh, longfin mako shark and a you know a plate of sea lion and a plate of, like, all these other things. Because, you know, as you mentioned, two-thirds of the fish that are caught here or a- animals that are caught are just thrown overboard again, um, which makes it in, uh, you know, the top 20% of dirtiest fisheries on the planet. Um, and so, if, you know, if we transition as consumers to things that are uh, – have less bycatch, and if we're aware of the impact of what we're doing, I think we're, we'll get there. We'll all end up. It's uh, You know, I appreciate the thanks for the work that we're doing, but it's by no means something that environmental advocates do um, by themselves because we know that none of us could do it without the support of the public, for sure.
0: Fantastic. That's a great point to make um, to end up there, Doug. So I want to just say thank you again for joining us today, and um, hopefully we'll run into you again real soon.
1: Yeah, well thanks so much for having me and uh, you know taking the time to bring light to this.
0: You're welcome. Thanks would again. Make it better. All right. I just want to recap uh, the website, seaturtles.org, and that is our local West Marin Sea Turtle Restoration Network, working on a number of issues, not just sea turtles, but working on a number of issues to help protect some of the wildlife in our waters as well as global waters. And you can learn about the way they work on these uh, issues online at seaturtles.org. And if you want, you can uh, sign action letters from their website too. He also mentioned regarding the uh, local, the uh, driftnet fishery in Southern California and the letter they're working to put towards the Pacific Fisheries Management Council. And you can write directly to the council at pfmc.comments at noah.gov. You can also go to the Pacific Fisheries Management Council website to learn more about these meetings and how to comment and get involved there as well. But indeed, all working towards making things a little bit more sustainable that we would love to get more public support and input and awareness about these really challenging issues. I'm going to take just a short break, uh, come back in a few minutes with a couple announcements. Thanks for staying with us on Ocean Currents. Oops, a frog has just jumped into my throat. Um, we've had been talking about some pretty challenging topics for the majority of this show, some some of the dirty stuff behind the scenes that we don't necessarily see on the forefront regarding uh, challenging fishery, the driftnet fishery happening in Southern California. And I just want to highlight a couple of really fun events coming up regarding the ocean to celebrate the good things that we have and encouraging people to stay engaged and helping to protect them. First of all, this is the last day of the San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival. I spent quite a bit of time down there in the last few days, and it's just been so inspiring to be amongst so many ocean advocates and filmmakers, bringing light to many issues on our global ocean. And tonight is the last program starting at 7 p.m. You can make it if you're listening in the nearby area, you can get down there tonight and... Um, The program has five films, and one of them is a beautiful close-up encounter with humpback whales underwater. It must be filmed outside of the United States, just based on the photo, probably the Dominican Republic. But really bringing some breathtaking scenes of um, humpback whales underwater and how they work together and um, interact with their young. The amazing life of sand, looking at uh, the history of sand and geology and shells and how sand is made beautiful beautiful cinematography six months at sea in the merchant marine what's it like to be on one of those giant container ships that crosses the ocean a firsthand look of work at sea I've always I'm actually really curious to see that and a couple other films so seven o'clock tonight San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival wraps up you can go to OceanFilmFest.org if you'd like to learn more. There's also, you can see the whole program online there. What a great program. It's been fun to be involved with it. Speaking of which, the student film competition screening was yesterday, and I was very proud that um, some of our students here from West Marin actually placed in the top three from West Marin School for the film called Trash Zilla. Another event coming up in March, this is also in San Francisco, with the Gulf of the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary, is a sea slug soiree. The Gulf of the Farallones has been putting on these soiree events for a few years now and having a really good time with people that come. They have a very uh, interdisciplinary approach to sharing some of the wonders of the sea through art and science, sometimes music. And this event is at the Randall Museum, March 21st, and it's 7 to 10 p.m., and it's a science and art celebration of elegant slugs of the sea, our beautiful nudibranchs. And Dr. Rebecca Johnson of the California Academy of Sciences will be there to talk about some of the astounding biology that we know about these slugs and some of the sneaky ways that they adapt and can steal defenses from their prey. Isn't that amazing? pretty awesome so it's a sea slug reception there's art music there'll be print making you can make your own sea slug print and there's complimentary beverages included there are tickets you do need to purchase tickets and to get more information you can go to farallons.org backslash events or call sarah Heinzelman at 415-561-6622 extension 237 the sea slug soiree sounds like a lot of fun and we are just about out of time here, but um, one thing that you can do locally here, we, uh, we're part of a network here in the National Marine Sanctuaries with Point Blue Conservation Science um, working on uh, ways to help protect whales in this region, not just from the fishing bycatch. We seem to not have that as a big issue here, but through shipping and there's a website, whaleaware.org, that really has all things about whales. I know a lot of people just love whales, and this is a great website because it has so much information about when to see them, where to see them, what are some of the current issues about protecting them, and how to get involved and learn more about them. So whaleaware.org, there's a link there for an app that's available for people who might be out whale watching, either on a boat or out at the coast, called uh Whale Alert, and that's free, and you can be involved in helping collect data of where these whales are so we can get more information to work with the industry to help slow down these ships. That's the long-term goal. WhaleAware.org. Well, I'm just about out of time here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Ocean Currents. Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month, and you can catch past episodes by following my podcast in iTunes. You can just search for Ocean Currents. Or you can go to our website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, and listen to all the past shows there as well. Thanks so much again for tuning in, and we'll be back next month. Thanks for tuning in to KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.